that's why you don't wrestle with caters and covered in peanut butter. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to ignore that. Hello and welcome to Tall and Short. My mama said. My mama said. My mama said. Are you okay? Are you having a stroke? That's from Waterboy. Still. H2O. Hello and welcome to Tall and Short with Tim and Tony. He's. He's Tony and I'm Tim, and I'm traumatized. <laughs> you were, don't, don't lie, you were traumatized before I walked in here. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm off, I'm off all sorts on this one. God damn. <laughs> all right, everybody, so we are, we're back. I said that we'd be back. And we are. Yeah, it's been a couple weeks now. Just we, as the gods predicted. It's been a couple of weeks. We haven't seen each other since, what is it, November. Give or take, yeah. yeah. It was like November. We haven't seen each other for like a month. We got over Pre-holidays. the holidays. Yeah. Got over the holidays hump. That was a ridiculous, just pain in the ass. Then Worth we, it all. Yeah, and then I had a hiccup in personal stuff, so we had to take another, or extend it just a little bit more, but... Yeah, no. We're, but, all, we're, we're back to a degree, all firing on, all you know, f- as many cylinders as we normally run on, so... Yeah, so that's... Like three, three and a half. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, I say that's good on that one. Yeah. So in that time, uh, the holidays was definitely an interesting one for uh, me, Tony. I have a, a very dumb story to tell you. And I just can't not tell these stories to you anymore because it's like I want your reactions for the sake of the podcast. You ready? No, I'm never just... <laughs> Go own. ahead, just so, rip the band-aid. So um, a few weeks after we had finished pre-recording a bunch of our stuff. Yeah. It's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is coming up. And I actually got to go see my family for Thanksgiving. It's also around the time that my dad's birthday is. Okay. So he gets to celebrate Thanksgiving and, you know, we're like, oh, happy birthday to you sort of situation. Now cut the turkey. Yeah. Cut the turkey, then cut the cake. Uh, my fiance had gotten a uh, a birthday card for my, for my mother because... Well, my mother's also born in November, so okay. both my parents are in November. Easy to remember, then. Yeah, about a week apart, a couple I years. I feel like uh, the, the remembering part's going to come into play, isn't it? Oh, boy. So she said, hey, I need you to get a card for your dad, a father-in-law card for me, so that way I can sign it and call it good. And I'm just like, all right, all right, no problem. So I go to CVS, and immediately my brain just is like, all right, so she's got the father-in-law card, i got to get the mother-in-law card. And I kept that in my damn head for a while. I was like, mother-in-law card, mother-in-law card, mother-in-law card. And sure as God's got sandals, sure as God's got sandals, I I bought a mother-in-law card for my dad. My fiance comes home, and <laughs> she's like, did you get it? I said, yeah, and I hold yeah, it. Yeah, I got it right here. I hold it up, and she's like, wait, hang on. Let me see it again. Hold it up. Says, I got that card for your mother. What? What? No, this is... You got, wait, don't you have for my, for my dad? No, I got one for your mom, you idiot. And she wasn't even mad. She was just, she was just laughing it up. We were, I was, I was like, yeah, I'm stupid. Why are you even, and even, nope. fur, and even further, I have it written in my notes on my grocery lists right there. It says father-in-law card, get father-in-law card for fiance. So. So I've known your fiance as long as you've known your fiance. Yes. Because you started dating her when we lived together. Yes. Why hasn't she just abandoned you on the side of the road yet? I'm a damn good cook. 
You've lived with me, and you know that the kitchen's my domain. Yeah, if you can reach the cabinets. I've got step stools for that, <laughs> mister. I've got a way around it. Anyway, so, so, she wasn't even mad. She was just like, you're an idiot. Why am I, you're an idiot. I agreed to marry you. You know what? Fuck it. We're in too deep at this point. So, she... I can't she, kill you now. There's evidence you exist. Also, she doesn't have an... Also, there's no insurance. There's no life insurance claims on me yet. So it's yet. like there's no point to kill yet. me yet. <laughs> Once you see those papers, start worrying and start so, testing your tea. So what she did was she just took a pen, scrawled out mother-in-law, and put father-in-law with an asterisk, and then everything on an asterisk on the inside, like it says. And then we took it to my parents. My dad had a laugh. I, I got them both. I gave them both their cards and said, "All right, you both have to open them at the same time." So they were like, same cards. My dad looked at his, like, it's got a star. And he's just like, what's this? And then we told the story, and he's and he's just holding his sides laughing. He, My dad's got a very good sense of humor. Like, he grew up in the 60s, 70s. So he grew up with, you know, Steve Martin, George Carlin, a lot of the, a lot of the comedic titans. Richard Pryor. I ain't dead yet, mother... Look at that word over there. <laughs> so... Yeah, and they put them up on Did, the mantle next to each other. I was going to say, please tell me your dad has that, like, framed somewhere. I think that'd be kind of cool, but, uh, yeah. Yes, this is when my son was an idiot. <laughs> oh, no, like, like Madison and I, Madison did, Madison said, you raised a fine son. He's not very smart, but he's got a good heart. And they're like, oh, yeah, my God. yeah, we did. And it was a, a good laugh on a lot of people's parts. You turned Yep, I tunanimented that one big time. Uh, oh god! And I'm I'm not even. Side note: I feel like our first shirt should be "You had a tunanimanimant moment." Yeah. <laughs> and it's just if we ever get to that. Yeah, it's just like the beginning of tournament, and then it just record scratches away. Just all right. Well, I'm speaking. So, moral of the story, you're an idiot. Moral of the story, yes, I'm an idiot. And Man. now we're going to talk about people that jump out of planes. Yep. Like if anybody, idiots. if people couldn't see by the, uh, people couldn't see by the intro, but not by the intro, the damn title, I am here today. We're talking about D.B. Cooper, so one of the most oh. infamous plane hijackings and disappearances in American history. While looking into this topic, I did find some really cool facts Related to the Cooper case. Yeah. Especially about airline security. So I did, I looked it up too, and I found a lot of articles saying they think they've figured out, for the most part, where who he was, like who he worked for, and yeah. line of line of work and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. So like I, I there's a, there's a there's a laundry list. I'm gonna have a lot of fun with that one. Yeah. Uh, with airline security, we're you and I have been on planes before. We've pre been through, and post. Uh, I've only that, been that I've one only, time. I've only been on planes post nine eleven. I've never been on planes pre nine eleven. My family didn't travel by plane a lot. If we traveled, it was by car and was usually yeah. to uh, either another state or just another city. Yeah. Pre nine eleven, from what I recall, because we moved from Florida to Germany. And oh yeah. Then to Oklahoma. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Decently lax. Just get to the gate and you're good. Yeah, and then if you watch movies for, that are based in like the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, 
Hey, man, you got a gun? Yeah. Is it loaded? Yeah. Take the bullets out. Get on the plane. You sm- You smoke? <laughs> you smoke? Yeah. 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 You you need you need a pack? Yeah. I do, <laughs> I've seen I've seen I've seen old um cold I saw an old Cold War movie a comedy movie called One Two Three, starring James Cagney. It takes place in Western Germany during the Cold War. Cagney plays a high end Coca Cola executive. And it's Coca-Cola. They actually are like Coca-Cola, I swear, uh, sponsored the movie or something. Probably. <laughs> uh, in, in Western Germany. And when they go to the... when they And they actually meet the uh, the daughter of the, of the CEO of Coca-Cola official, uh, they go... They're out on the tarmac and everything waiting for her. Like, that would not fly nowadays. Oh, no pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Like... Yeah. That would think, not at all. I think my favorite trope from that era of flying is, hey, aren't you the captain? Yeah. Who's flying the plane? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you have a cocktail in your hand? Uh, so I can fly the plane? Yeah. Like, yeah, but the the, the, the it, smooth James Kirk drinking captain trope. Yes, yeah. how it's just changed since then is, an, is insane. But we're going to look at a little bit of, you know, pre all of that. Thanks to IBM.com, I actually got some cool little stats. So, for one, you're familiar with the golden age of piracy, right? Yeah. Well, this, well, from May 1961 to December 1972, this was seen as the golden age of airplane hijackings. Mm-hmm. With a total of 159 recorded hijackings, majority of them happened between 1968 and 1972, with multiple hijackings, hijackings, hijackings. <laughs> That's canon now. That's how we're going to call the them. hijackings. They happened the same day. <laughs> A good chunk of these hijackings. I cannot now. I'm 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 onto this. I can't not now. Um, they were related to people who wanted to fly to Cuba after the Cuban Revolution ended in 1959. I mean, have you tried a Cuban score? I mean, don't get me wrong. They wanted to be seen as these revolutionaries and receive protection from Fidel Castro. But, yep. you know, eh, wrong. There's Castro. They'd be arrested, and then Castro would tr- would offer to sell the stolen planes back for a meager $7,500 USD. So it's like, eh. So it's like, I got your plane. I can sell you back to you. Why do you sound like a smarmy... That was not that was not Cuban at all. Smarmy Russian used car salesman? Something like that. That was not I mean communist. I sell you Skoda, it's great car. Because it wasn't the fifties, it was when communism to some young Americans during the fifties and sixties was seen seen as the future. Yes. I I mean you've seen Oppenheimer, right? Nope. You haven't? (laughs) No. Dude, there's dude Listen. If if there was ever a war of Barbie versus Oppenheimer, fair enough. I saw both. My name's Ken, <laughs> <laughs> but Oppenheimer it actually deals into that quite a bit with yeah, the with I, the I, communist I, Red yeah. Scare stuff. It's yeah, really it, McCarthyism and yeah. it was really good, like yeah. really well done. The political tension is yeah. I, I saw like the last forty minutes and I totally didn't fall asleep. <laughs> It's a slow burn of a movie, God, but it's, it's so slow. But, but it, it's interesting enough to where it will hold your attention. The the tension up to the bomb, like when they're building it, 
you can feel it. It's God. Uh, before we get before we continue, it wouldn't be until 1973 though that all airports would have metal detectors and anyone entering an airport would have to pass through them. This would also lead to universal baggage checks. Yep. So all plane, all airports, not just the United States. This would this would subvert the Fourth Amendment on unlawful searches and seizures. So for the sake of that. So all of a sudden you can't carry a fucking battle sword on the plane. Yep. Nerds. This was due to fears that some officials thought planes could be used as weapons. And <laughs> the fears were true. The fears wound up being very true several decades later. I mean, mm. you don't even really have to go decades because, I mean, there wasn't there a plane that hit the Empire State Building back in the 80s? No, 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 it was a bombing. It was a bombing under the World Trade Center. Well, I know, but I thought... I don't I recall where there was, a like, a small biplane. I, anyway. I don't recall. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah the, the thought was there. Oh, yeah, big time. Not just... <clears throat> so, this, uh, this, was, this was actually spurned on from fears by some officials that... Uh, Again, planes used as weapons. The hijackings still have happened since 1973, but most of them have been severely dwindled to only a handful of quote-unquote successful attempts. Only a small number now, comparatively. I feel like I'm going to go to hell for this one. What you got? Quality over quantity. Yeah. Hmm. Ah, yeah, that hurt me. <laughs> but yeah, the the successful hijackings. Yeah, it, <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the successful yeah. ones again, small amount. Yeah, and it's usually been the result of possibly pilots going rogue, such as the Malaysia, the, the, the Dude, that, that plane. There's a documentary on that on Netflix, I think. Yeah. <sighs> You talk about a freaking spiral. That 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 pilot had some demons. He had some bit. demons. I've, I've listened into some some stories about yeah. that. But that was so airport security. Hey, you didn't you didn't even have to have your you didn't have to show a, a license or an ID when you went there. You could just go in, get a ticket, and say, "I want to travel to so and so. I want to travel to Dallas." Like go to OKC Why? first off. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, I want to travel to Dallas. I don't want to try. It's a short flight through Dallas. I can just go there, enjoy myself as a businessman, and go home. I'm like, you could do that, which is I insane. Can go drink my brandy and uh, have intercourse with all the secretaries and then go back. Pretty much. So, with that little piece of information about airport security out of the way, we're going to now focus our attention towards November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving. Story time. Yep, chips. No. It's going to sound so good on the audio. I know, right? Just try not to eat into the mic, all right? Like, what? Oh, ha, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh, oh, fuck. <laughs> Tony has Carolina Reaper chips. or Puffs. In, actually, cheesy puffs. Ha! Huh. <laughs> you regret your decisions now? No, no, I'm fine. Carry In on. fact, I remember you telling me about those. Those weren't too hot, and apparently... Listen, I've drank since then. Uh-huh. Now. I've piloted a plane since then. 
Now then, as I said, this takes us to November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving. Ironic me, ironic me mentioning that, considering that I I just brought up the Thanksgiving story. Your father-in-law. The father-in-law, father-in-law card, yeah. Card. yeah that afternoon at the Portland International Airport, it was an average day for most of the workers. Side note. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, I'm, I'm laughing at Tony's reactions to the chips right now. Huh. Side note. It seems that Thanksgiving is usually a quiet time for airports. You'd think it'd be busy. You'd think. But that took me by surprise. Since it's only for a day, that kind of makes sense. Most people stay stay home. They're really hot. <laughs> I might, don't like this. You might want to stop, dude. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> oh god. The most busy the most busy times for air for airports is definitely during the actual holidays like december through yeah, I was say, of january like the week before i think or christmas probably most of december i would even argue yeah anyway back to our story at hand a man entering the airport was wearing a dark business suit and carrying a black briefcase and had made his way to the flight counter of northwest orient airlines he bought a one-way ticket on flight 305 with cash which this ticket was about twenty dollars at the time. The plane was a thirty-minute. The plane was a thirty-minute flight to SeaTac, the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. When asked for the name on the ticket, the man gave the name Dan Cooper. Any and all eyewitnesses who were asked about Cooper described him the same way. He was in his mid-forties, white male with lightly tanned skin, little swarthy, dark hair, brown eyes. Clean-shaven, no visible tattoos, scars, blemishes of any type. He apparently stood about 5'10 to 6'11. 6'12. 6'11? Oh, God, that's a tall guy. 6'0 even, but I'd wager actually 5'11, so about average height. Seemed to be of average weight, build, so 180 pounds for his height. Wore a dark business suit with a white dress shirt and a narrow black tie, which turned out to be a clip-on. A mother of pearl tie clip on the um, on the tie, a black raincoat and brown shoes. Now I like his style up to this point, but the brown shoes with a black suit, fashion faux pas. Get the fashion police over here. We have a class three misdemeanor on fashion here. Why? There's the sirens. <laughs> I actually, I hope that gets picked up on the microphone. That's actually sirens. <laughs> But everyone knows you wear black shoes with a black suit. I know I said a dark suit, so it could have been a dark brown suit, but I digress. You are so dumb. As a man of fashion... As, <laughs> as a, a fashion, man who doesn't care about fashion... As a fashion-forward man, damn it. I, I like looking good, what can I say? I'm gonna throw Cheeto puffs at you. Please don't. I don't want to <laughs> clean that up. I don't want ants in the middle of, this, of January. You don't want ants in the middle of your nice pleated... Pant... <laughs> shoot shut up i'll let you finish that thought there you go shut up <laughs> anyway the plane that cooper boarded was a boeing 727 which is a thin body plane for <laughs> those who are unfamiliar <laughs> yeah just a single like three aisles on both sides th- three three row of seats on both sides of one aisle very small plane no first class everybody middle class yeah actually there's a like a All partition right, curtain the rest is coach these planes were smaller than your wide-body planes because they were designed for smaller airports, and thanks to their size, they had a built-in air stair at the back of the plane. 
And at the time, these air stairs could be opened while the plane was in flight. You know, this safety. This become very important later <laughs> down the way. Cooper sat in a seat near the back of the plane in seat 18-6, an aisle seat. He ordered a drink and paid for it and everything. He would eventually move to 18-E, a window seat. There you were could a t- do that back in the day. Oh, yeah. Back, well, I mean, considering the fact that I looked at the looked at a standard, like, 727 uh, layout. layout seating chart sort of situation. Not a lot of seats. Like, I mean, if you're, if it's like, if it's like there's 18, if there's 18 by 6, that's over, you know, that's a number, that's over 100 seats. I'm not going to try to get into the math on it. Yeah, don't do math. Well. No, now we're doing this. I'm not a math major anyway. This is not a math <laughs> podcast. Nope. But there were a total of 42 people on the plane with 36 passengers and six crew. Mm-hmm. So Cooper included on the 36 passengers. And the crew was Captain William A. Scott, First Officer William Ratichak, Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson, and then the flight attendants, Alice Hancock, Tina Mucklow, and Florence Schaefner. Those three pilots, or flight crew guys? Yeah. Definitely had some drinks just based off those names before they <laughs> took off. Possibly. Uh, yeah, William yeah. Scott was the captain, so he's the main pilot. First so officer, he had a whiskey. First officer is the co-pilot. And then your flight engineer was essentially like the navigator who helped mm. out. Cause yeah. This was before we had a lot of the... Assistance a, and... A lot of the more yeah. com- more big computerized uh, stuff. Yeah. So they still I do think, that on military planes, right? Yeah, I think for the most part they always have at least three, maybe four, depending on the size of the plane. Uh-huh. I think the Blackbirds, the SR-71s, I think they have a five-man crew. Wow. Because it's it's a deceptively large plane, but they have a pilot, a co-pilot. They have someone, I think, specifically to monitor the speeds. Uh-huh. And then they have a navigator and, like, a satellite, you know, radar I, guy. I would even, wouldn't it surprise me if they had, like, a reserve pilot, too? Because you gotta I think, have... I think they're all qualified to pilot, but... That makes sense. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. But yeah, at least I think the same setup is common for most military planes still. Mm, all right. At least the large ones. Once all cleared for takeoff, the plane <clears> left <throat> at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Not long after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to flight attendant Schaefner, who was assigned the aft end of the plane, so the back end. Initially, she thought it was just another businessman giving her a phone number or a dirty note or his hotel room that he was going to be staying in. Of course. Which was common back then. Just, you know, you're a businessman traveling a lot, you're lonely, sort of thing. Yeah. Schaefner almost disregarded the note until Cooper leaned over and whispered to her, saying, You should read the note. I have a bomb. Schaefner opened the note, and it did say that Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase, and he wanted her to sit next to him. Yeah! To, to show he wasn't bluffing, he then bri- he then, he then uh, briefly opened the briefcase. <laughs> oh, I thought he was... Wait. <laughs> and he should... Don't you dare get your head out of the gutter right now. Get it out of the gutter right now. He briefly briefed his briefs. <laughs> and he showed what appeared to be approximately six red tubes or sticks that were about six to eight inches in length, a bunch of wires, all connect, all connected to what appeared to be an eight-inch cylindrical battery. And to Schaefner, this looked like a bomb. I mean, yeah, first, in that heat of the moment, yeah, I'm going to err on the side of caution. Oh, yeah, no, and I actually looked at the 
looked at FBI records of this because thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, it's yeah, out there. Yeah. It's out there. But yeah. they've got some stuff redacted, like names and stuff oh, for the sake yeah. of obviousness. Yeah. Uh, but it was also like over 400 pages. And I'm just like, ah, no, that's funny. That's most, cute. Mostly no. because a lot of the paperwork was still like descriptions of Cooper over and over again. So I'm like, yeah. I don't want to just wade through Equal all that witness. nonsense. Because there's, you know, the sheriff's department. There's the, all the stuff involved. All the yeah. all the law enforcement involved with this. Yeah. Uh, after Schaefner sat next to Cooper, he told her he had a list of demands, which included $200,000, all in $20 bills. Now, okay. Now I would hate this guy if he came into the casino and he bought in with all of that. By the time I'd be done, I would have to be moving on to the next table. Besides, I don't think we would be allowed to change out two hundred thousand dollars because we do not have two hundred thousand dollars at my casino. That would be way too fucking much. I just, I, I want to. That's a lot of twenties, man. It is. It is a lot of twenties, and your standard strap of twenties is about a hundred, so two thousand dollars. So we're looking at over a hundred straps of twenties, and a brick is about five of those. So I'm looking at about twenty bricks. I think is how the math is mathing right now in my head. I could be wrong. Are we talking about money, or are we talking about cocaine at this point? It sounds like you're talking about drugs. No, that's <laughs> we're, we're talking money. There's just a yeah. lot of like lingo in between drugs money. and money. Yeah. It's, well, you know. It wouldn't surprise me if I've actually handled some of the money that may have actually had residue on it from drugs. It wouldn't surprise me. I wash my hands frequently because of that. And on a brief side note, this amount of money, $200,000 back in 1971, would be a little over $1.5 million. Oh my god. Why? In, to, in today's money, just based on inflation. Jesus. I can't not do it. It's nearly difficult not to do the Dr. Evil thing. Cooper also asked for four parachutes, two front or reserve parachutes, and two back parachutes, which is your standard usage parachutes. These were civilian parachutes because military parachutes open automatically, while civilian parachutes you have to manually open. Yep. Because of the ripcord. It was like a hook or something that... Yeah, they have a hook system on most plane or most jump planes. Yeah. Where as soon as you get past a certain point, the hooks doesn't break away, but like releases it pulls and it pulls the shoot out. And that's like, if you look up when people are parachuting out of a military plane, yeah. As soon as they're out of the plane, their shoot almost immediately opens. That that's explains what that it. is. <coughs> when Cooper was done with his demands, he told Schaefner to tell the pilots who then relayed all of this to SeaTac air traffic control which led to security, and then the Seattle police, and the FBI, and then this whole just dominoes, Benny Hill chase of law enforcement getting involved. It's like, oh, he told the butcher, then the butcher told the baker, and then the baker told the local judge, and then the... So I can keep going here for a minute. Going for another one? No. Uh-huh. <laughs> The FBI also reached out to Donald Nyrop, the president of Northwest Orient Airlines, who said he wanted full compliance with the hijackers' demands. So hot. <laughs> Tony took another bite of the chips. Shut and up. he's uh, having fun. I'm so scared right now. 
Because Cooper had demanded four parachutes, there was fear he'd be taking a hostage, which, that, meant, yeah. which meant you don't want to tamper with any of them. No, because you don't know which one he's going to put on them. Cooper had also demanded that there be a fueling truck to meet the plane when it landed in Seattle, yep. that the passengers stay on the plane until the money was brought aboard, and that the parachutes were to the last were to be the last items brought on board. Tina Mucklow, another flight attendant, was demanded by Cooper to sit by him at all times. Cooper now having moved to the window seat 18E. Mucklow said Cooper seemed to be familiar with the terrain outside, mentioning seeing the city of Tacoma while they flew over it, and that the McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from SeaTac. Okay. Apparently, during this whole exchange, Mucklow described Cooper as calm, nice, polite. He was still willing to pay for his drink, even if he was hijacking the plane, and he even requested food for the flight crew when it landed at SeaTac. So he's a nice guy, I guess? He's human? Uh, karma? He's trying to make sure his karma's okay? I don't know, maybe. Uh, yeah. It was supposed to be a 30-minute flight, and it became a two-and-a-half-hour flight, which this the extended time was to allow the FBI, police, and SeaTac to meet Cooper's demands. I actually decided to look at, um, you know, how long it would take to drive from... Portland to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Like uh, 20 minutes or something, doesn't it? No, it would be about two and a half hours. Oh, okay. So quite literally, these people could have just driven there in the, exa- in the same amount of time. <laughs> Don't you hate when that happens? All of a sudden, your plane's hijacked, and you could have gotten there by driving. Because you're getting through all the mountains and trees and stuff, so it's going to mm. be a little windy. Yeah. So it's going to take a while, but a flight is going to take a half hour just because you're just you're circumventing everything. Yeah. The passengers aboard Flight 305 were informed that their descent into Seattle would be delayed to minor mechanical difficulties. Mm. So, not only is this guy a Class 3 misdemeanant, he's now an asshole who extended a plane's flight. We've both flown on planes, you and I. There's a special level of hell for people like you. And if people are stuck in a plane for longer than need be, they do become some assholes. I mean... There's no no doubts on that one. Like they will oh. shut down a plane, and like is the air is the air clear? Like they have to do so much, yeah. so much, literally sweeping the area to make sure that it's clear. Yeah, it's an, it's 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 ridiculous. But you got to be, but air traffic is supposed to be safe, and it is. Like flying is actually one of the safest modes of transportation. Until you hit a freaking bird with and an engine. They take they do what they can to. Oh, yeah, I know. Mitigate but... a lot of that. Like, the, a lot of the stuff that's happened now... A giant to... metal tube that can fly there in the air at, like, 500 miles an hour? Tiny woodpecker. Who's going to win? <laughs> when the plane circled around... While the plane circled around Seattle and the Puget Sound, Mucklow and Cooper continued to chat. She asked him why he chose this specific airline. He said he didn't have a grudge against the company. He just had a grudge and the airline suited his needs. Cooper then asked where Mucklow was from. She said she was originally from Pennsylvania, but was living in Minneapolis. Cooper responded that Minnesota was very nice country. I've never been to Minnesota myself, but I've actually been told it's a very beautiful state. A lot of trees and hills and mountains, I think. 
When asked where he was from, Cooper became agitated and didn't answer. He offered Mucklow a cigarette. She said she'd quit smoking, but accepted the cigarette from him. Which I don't blame her. I mean, I think I would do the same. Like, I don't even smoke. I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to need a puff. High stress environment with a customer who's very demanding and there might be a bomb in his briefcase. Yeah. The $200,000. <laughs> is that a bomb in your box or is he just happy to see me? <laughs> You're terrible. This is why we're friends. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Yep, you are. I'm a good person. The $200,000 was collected at that time in a bag that wound up weighing about 20 pounds, which that that checks out. As somebody who's used to work in a department where I handled amounts of money like that, that's not too far off. Yeah. It's that's... about 20 pounds, of, 20 pounds of money right there. Uh, the bills were non-sequential 20s, although they most had serial numbers that started with an L, which is from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. The bills were also photographed on microfilm before they were put into a bag. Smart. Mm-hmm. The parachutes were acquired from a local skydiving school in Seattle and a local stunt pilot. After nearly flying for over two hours, Captain Scott was informed that the money and parachutes were waiting at the airport. He had the info relayed to Cooper, who gave permission for, for the plane to park at a partially lit runway away from the main terminal. He said he wanted one representative of the airline to approach with the money and parachutes, and the only entrance and exit was to be the front door, which is where they usually go up near the front. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not the aft stairs. Yeah, those come in later. <laughs> yeah, that's later. The operations manager of Northwest Orient's Seattle was chosen to be the one to deliver the money and parachutes. The manager changed into civilian clothes for fear that his work uniform might be mistaken for a police officer's uniform. Smart. So I don't blame him on that one. I mean, yeah. last thing we need is for a guy to see the police doing this and then, you know, like, my demands aren't met, goodbye. And then all of a sudden we have a show. The passengers remained seated while Tina Mucklow went out and collected the ransom money. Once it was all past the customers and with Cooper, he allowed them to disembark. While the passengers left... Cooper inspected the money, while Mucklow attempted to make a joke and asked if she could have some of the money. He quickly grabbed a packet of bills to give her, but she told him it was against policy for flight attendants to receive tips. So, sort of a nice guy. I mean, he's got $200,000. What's he... He's like, here you go, here's like, uh, here's, you know, a couple thousand bucks. It's like, I don't think he even needed the $200,000. I think he was just proving a point. More than likely. Mucklow then went out and took three trips to gather the parachutes for Cooper. While this was going on, Schaffner walked up to Cooper and asked for her purse, which was in a compartment behind his seat. He allowed her to do so, saying, I don't bite. Yet you may have a bomb. So. I don't, I don't, bite, I don't bite by blow up. And good thing you said blow up. <laughs> like, good thing you said blow up. That would have gone very south very quick. The third flight attendant, Alice Hancock, then asked if she and Schaffner could leave the plane, which Cooper allowed. He, he saw them as not part of his plan anymore. Non-essential. Yep. When the fourth and final parachute was brought on board, Mucklow handed Cooper instructions to use the parachutes, but he said he didn't need them. There was a delay in the, in the refueling process, though, 
which caused two more refueling trucks to come up. During this delay, Cooper complained about the money being in a cloth sack and not a knapsack that he had asked for. So I can literally see a 20-pound, like, just pillowcase of money being given to him instead of, like, an actual banker's bag or something. Yeah, that or he was just a duffel bag in general. That he's asking for, because that would have been much easier. So he had to improvise, and he sacrificed a parachute by cutting it open with a pocket knife and using the now-empty bag to carry the money. I believe it was a res- one of the reserves, one of the front packets that he used, which okay. makes sense. Yeah. Those are those are smaller ones. The yeah, they're ones are smaller than mains. Yeah, Cooper began to grow impatient and annoyed with the delay. He's like, "Come on, I got the money. Get me out of here!" Soon, with the plane ready to go, Cooper gave his own flight path and director and directives. The plane was to take a southeast course to Mexico City while traveling at 100 knots, which is around 115 miles per hour, or 185 kilometers per hour so that's a slow ass plane yes i mean you can get you can get you can get 150 speed in a vehicle in a land vehicle uh easily that is on the bottom end of a 727's performance i can't imagine that if they go slower than that they're not gonna stall oh yeah no kidding because it's like what is it like 115 110 is the governor for most land vehicles yeah maybe 120 yeah my I'm not admitting to any crimes, but if I were to have a motorcycle and if I were to go fast on it, the speedometer definitely stops at 120. So you've gone about as fast as this plane has gone. <laughs> Allegedly. 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 With a ma- and but this at 100 knots, so 115 miles per hour, at a maximum height of 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters. So so he's going slow and ex- going decently high. Yeah, but not like 30,000 feet. So no. legitimately a third of where they would want to be. So yeah. he's keeping it low. The landing gear was also to remain deployed. The wing flaps lowered to a 15 degrees for some odd reason. And the cabin to remain depressurized. This seems like another one of those math questions that you get in a textbook. Like, yeah, well, you that, solve for X. Ugh, my brain just went to like... Fifth grade, like, if Tommy's traveling at this speed... Yeah, if you travel for 100 knots at 10,000 feet high while also accounting for the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow, how much money will it take for Mr. Cooper to get out of jail? Did you just quote Money Python? Yes, I did. Go. (laughs) Go at any time. First Officer Ratichak told Cooper this wouldn't be possible without a second refueling at a halfway point. Mm-hmm. Cooper was a little dissuad- was a little um, annoyed, but he and the crew agreed on the Reno Tahoe International Airport in Reno, Nevada. Cooper also demanded the rear exit door be opened and the air stairs extended, but he was told it would be unsafe. He tried to argue this, but didn't fight it too long, and said he would open them during the flight, with Mucklow staying with him to assist in the operation. So it's like, fine, I'll do it myself. Did you just quote the Avengers? I did. All right. But now it's around 7.30, 7.40 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's been going on for over five hours now. The plane takes off once again, with Cooper, the flight crew, and Mucklow all on board. 
Unbeknownst to Cooper, there were three jets that were also accompanying the plane. Two F-106 fighters from McCord Air Force Base and a Lockheed T-33 from the Air National Guard. The three jets moved in S-flight patterns to stay out of Cooper's sight since the plane was going so slow. Full-on just snaking behind the plane because they had no other way to <laughs> keep out of him. Because yeah. the plane's traveling 115 and flight jets, like, can't. They literally cannot go that there's slow. There's no such thing as slow. No. The only time they slow is when they stop. Yeah. When the plane, <laughs> with the plane in the air, <laughs> slow is stop. Slow is stop. Stop is slow. Slow is stop. <laughs> There's another shirt. Stop God equals slow. I love it. With the plane in the air and where Cooper wanted it, he ordered Mucklow to lower the air stairs to the back of the plane. She was afraid of being sucked out of the plane and wanted to get an emergency rope from the cockpit. That way she could tie it around her waist and a chair. Cooper said he didn't want her to do that before ultimately saying he would lower the stairs himself and that Mucklow was to go to the cockpit, close the curtain partition that separated first class from the rest of the plane, and to stay there. And she did as she was instructed. She turned around one last time to see Cooper strapping the money bag around his waist. At 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the flight crew all felt their air pressure drop due to the rear exit door opening. Emergency lights came on to indicate that both the rear exit door and the air stairs had been deployed. The the cockpit did not have an actual, like, deploy stairs. It just had a warning light saying yeah, it. Just, so uh, it was all manual back then. Yeah. Then at 18.13 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, while the plane was over some suburbs north of Portland... The plane pitched forward, causing the pilots to stabilize the plane and return to flight level. So the tail went up, <clears> nose <throat> went down a little. I'd look up like what pitch everything was, yeah, like a diagram, yeah. Because I'm I'm unfamiliar with a lot of flight turns, so I do a lot. Tim of no fly good. No, not really. The crew remained in the cockpit for the rest of the flight, with Mucklow using the intercom to tell Cooper that the plane was nearing. Reno and the aft stairs had to be brought up for safe landing. But Cooper didn't respond. Just after 11 p.m., the plane landed in Reno with the air stairs still deployed. Law enforcement from the FBI to local Reno police had set up a perimeter around the plane, unsure if Cooper and the bomb were still on board. Captain Scott left the cockpit and inspected the plane's cabin with no sign of Cooper anywhere. The man had vanished into the night. Hmm. And now he's free, free fallen. Don't you dare insult Tom Petty like that, sir. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. So, right off the bat, I was always under the impression he jumped somewhere over Tacoma, Seattle, like, in, yeah. like, the heavily... Wooded like Olympus or what is it? Mount. What's the mountain that Olympia. Mount Saint, Mount Helen? Saint Helens, yeah, yeah, somewhere in that area is yeah. where I thought he was always. Nah, he jumped a, out. It's Portland, Oregon. Okay, it's where he landed. Well, there's a large swath of land. Yeah, we'll, but yeah, that's that whole area. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize he was. I thought he was just going straight to Mexico. I didn't. I forgot about the refueling. Yeah, Reno he was supposed to. The do. plane was too small to make a trip that long. It yeah. had to be refueled. Obviously, the FBI would get to work trying to find out who this Dan Cooper was, 
and hopefully find him and bring him to justice for his crimes. When they began their investigation inside the plane, they found Cooper's clip-on tie, his tie pin, two of the parachutes, with one of them having the shroud lines, that's the suspension lines, mm-hmm. on a pl- on a air on a on a uh, per- parachute. My brain shut off. That was like on an apparatus. Parachute. Uh, cut from it, as well as cigarette butts and two strands of hair, one from the head and one from the limb. So, like, arm hair and... Yeah. Likely Cooper's arm. The FBI also talked to any and all eyewitnesses they could, getting descriptions of the man and compiling sketches of his face, which we're all very familiar with, seeing the image of Dan Cooper, of this man named Dan Cooper, with the sunglasses and without the sunglasses... And what's even more, he looks like your stereotypical, like, late 1960s dad. Like, I can see him holding a pipe and, like, yeah. smoking from a pipe. He looks very much like a like He a is 60s... the most average man in the world. Exactly. <laughs> and which makes it even more difficult as to who the hell he was. Yep. It should be no surprise that the FBI... That the FBI... FBA, what the hell's that? The FBI would have their fair share of suspects... Because, as I said, he looks like your average, run-of-the-mill white guy from the late 60s. He's got his hair slicked back. It's kept nice and clean. One particular suspect was a Portland man who was, unfortunately, named D.B. Cooper. Who just happened to have a similar name to the alias the hijacker had used. Can, I can't imagine being just, like, mowing your lawn one day. All of a sudden, FBI's pulling up, like, hands yeah. in there. I'm like, what? I didn't do anything. I Let's swear see. it's my lawn. A reporter in Portland confused the Portland Cooper with the Paratrooper Cooper and thus put D.B. Cooper. Do that again? Paratrooper Cooper. All right. Yeah, you heard me. That's and thus a... put D.B. Cooper in the story and the name stuck. So quite truly, it is a misnomer from a reporter who just had to get the deadline in. So Dan Cooper is the original name. D.B. Cooper just became the media name. Yep. Some poor suburban dad was like, I'm just mowing my lawn, man. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, the FBI did an extensive search for weeks in the area that Dan Cooper was said to have landed. So now it's ruined Thanksgiving for these investigators, the jackass. I mean, for some of them, it was probably a blessing, let's be honest. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I more than likely. But <laughs> some people are like, I was going to have turkey with my with my family now i gotta take care of a hijacking now i just gotta eat mras in the middle of the fucking portland woods yep some ass the sr-71 blackbird spy plane was also hey, used to help look around. for cooper it was also helped to look for cooper by Why? order by order of j edgar hoover the blackbird the sr-71 blackbird sr-71 blackbird this surveillance the fastest mother jet the highest the the fastest highest jet with excellent to surveillance look for equipment. a guy because he got away they had to find him two hundred thousand dollars yeah but fuck i don't know why there's a lot of questions okay, here we're there's going more. back to the jets can't fly good slow <laughs> that is the fastest jet it flies at the worst at slow i'll get into a lot of it here oh my god so poor visibility made it difficult for this plane to for the spy plane to look for anything because you got to think about it. It's Oregon, so there's going to be a lot of clouds. There's a lot of trees. There's a lot of fog. A lot of Bigfoots. There's always Bigfoots. This just in. D.B. Cooper is Bigfoot. No, I will not take questions. (laughs) (laughs) 
It makes sense when you think about it. It really does. It hurts now. And no, I'm, I'm still annoyed about the, source of the Blackbird thing. Yeah. I don't know why J. Edgar Hoover wanted it, but yeah, he still he was like, send it out. The I air- need you guys to take the nice scenic tour of Rome. <laughs> Ducati. Yep. The area that Cooper had jumped was very forested and mountainous. Not to mention, it was also a cold, dark, rainy night when he jumped, which is sort of why the jets couldn't find him. This is in November. This is November in Oregon. So so it's muddy and cold and horrible. Yes. The likelihood of someone surviving is very slim, given that Cooper couldn't see where he was jumping. He could have gotten impaled on a tree or tangled up in his parachute in a tree or hit the ground and then picked off by animals. <laughs> a body has never been found in the large area that the FBI covered. So he just gets impaled on the top of a pine tree. Yeah. His body's just up there for weeks, just eh. Oh, it's up there for years. It's probably a skeleton now, just like slow the bones drop in just But a body's It's been... rain and bones. Oh my <laughs> god, it's raining bones. That's a song I didn't even think to consider. A body has never been found, and so he may have survived, but we'll never know. The FBI had told the public that they believed he didn't survive the jump. While some newfound Cooper fans saw him as a Robin Hood type character and they think he got away with it. Because he's like, yeah, he. It's kind of like how we romanticize some pirates and stuff. Like they're, you know, outlaws and they. They kind of were like stuck it to the man, you know? They lived, they lived a dream that many of us probably do have to get away with it. I mean. Just 200,000? Back then, that was a lot of money. That, that was. I mean, $1.5 million I mean, today, so it's like... I mean, that could buy you all the brandy and cigarettes. Pretty much. Less than a week after the hijacking, several letters were sent to different newspapers around the Pacific Northwest, Reno, Nevada, and Oakdale, California, for some reason. Hmm. The letters were handwritten, typed, and even had used cut-up pieces of magazine articles and newspapers. Kind of like your classic ransom note. Yeah. These letters were supposedly from Cooper and they were taunting the FBI for being unable to find him. They could have been somebody who was like, oh, I kind of like this guy. I want to help him out, and so they brought him up. Could have done all that. Yeah. But then, in 1980, a major turn in the case happened when a young boy managed to find some of the ransom money at a beachfront named Tina Bar on the Columbia River. There were three packets of worn and degraded 20s, with the amount being about eh, $5,800. So a small fraction of the 200000 Yeah, but still. Money. Despite the ragged appearance of the bills, they still had their rubber bands on them and the serial numbers matched the ones from the heist. Nice. No surprise this discovery led to more questions than answers. Yeah. How'd the money get to this location? <clears throat> Who put it there? Did Cooper survive the jump after all? No. Was it, it was buried. Like, did somebody else find the money and put it there? Save it and more, rat hole it for later. More questions. And now for the parachutes. Of the four parachutes, only two were found in the plane. An unused back parachute and a front reserve parachute. But as well as the one canopy that Cooper had removed to use the bag for the money. So he threw away a functioning, a possible functioning front reserve parachute in favor of the money bag. Which, questionable. Interestingly enough... One of the reserve parachutes was a dummy chute that was used 
in skydiving classes to help students feel what it's like to pull a ripcord without the canopy opening. Yeah. But that particular shoot was not found. I'm beginning, I'm thinking that he may have sacrificed the, uh, the dummy shoot and um, used that as the money bag. Yeah. Even more, the main back parachutes that Cooper was given didn't have necessary harnesses to attach the reserve parachutes. I did mention he improvised and turned one of the parachutes into a money bag, and there were three shroud lines that had been cut. I'm thinking that he may have used the dummy chute as the bag, as I just brought up, yeah. and then the shroud lines he tied a weird, he tied a weird um, makeshift rope around, like a harness almost, to put okay. it around his waist. Oh, yeah. Because okay. apparently the back parachutes, <clears throat> apparently the back parachutes, uh, yeah, didn't have the necessary harnesses. So he... <laughs> I've just mentioned that. Yeah. Like the proper D-rings. Yeah. And parachutes, like to think, oh, it's just a, you just, you know, like, like a backpack. It's like, no, you no. got a backpack, you got the set, you got the back it's, straps. It's closer the, to a five-point racing harness. Yeah, than pretty a, much. Than a seat, or than a backpack. Yeah, you're doing, a, you're putting a lot there. Because when you deploy a parachute, I think... It's all you're. It's all like right here because it's well, all center point of center. You're just gonna I th- at least for um, I think for fighter jets pilots, it's a whole apparatus. You put your legs through two loops as well, uh-huh. and when that parachute releases, all that tension goes upwards. Those Whip. those straps gotta go somewhere. Yep, and then you sing soprano for a while. Yeah, that sounds about right. But yeah, so there were also latent prints and potential DNA traces where Cooper was seated on the plane, but none of it could be linked to him directly because this is the seven. This is the seventies. Yeah, the limb hair mentioned earlier had no sufficient DNA to match for whoever Dan Cooper was, and the head hair was initially preserved, but was lost sometime before two thousand two when the FBI were beginning to build a DNA a DNA profile. I want to mess the A's and I's up for these for some odd reason. Hijacking. For forensic sake, DNA testing and profiling didn't become a thing until the mid to late 80s. Yeah. The cigarette butts collected were also destroyed before 1998 in the Las Vegas field office. Son of a bitch. So, yeah, uh, not keeping... I understand, like, not wanting to keep, a, uh, you know, data or anything. Like, some stuff, some... Eventually, some stuff just gets uh, destroyed in police custody, like... Right. I I wouldn't know for certain. Yeah, I mean, decay of evidence, and then most departments don't speak to each other. Well, they didn't back then. They definitely didn't back then, but and they still don't a lot now. But, yeah, mistranslation of evidence, storing, being stored or being mislabeled, or just someone being an idiot. There's always that. There's always just that human factor that's a There's always a, a Barney Fife. Yep. Hey, Andy! Hi, Andy! The clip-on tie had more clues to help out with the FBI, though, yeah. as well as other investigators on the possible identity of the hijacker. The tie was a JCPenney exclusive and had been Fancy discontinued... And had been discontinued since 1968. The tie had some partial DNA samples, but weren't sufficient if they were from Cooper's. Because he could have got this thing at a thrift store, is what some people may think. Yeah. In 2009, the Cooper Research Team, or CRT, a group of citizen sleuths, analyzed the tie. 
Now, when I say citizen sleuths, yeah, they're not law enforcement or investigators, but they're it's not before, your... It's keyboard detectives before keyboard detectives. They're not average people either. Some of the key members of this of this group included Tom Kay, Alan Stone, and Carol Abitrajanak. That last name is getting me a little. Kanzutite. Yep. They, I managed to find a website on the Cooper research team. So nice. I actually have brief profiles so of all three. So you found a page about the people investigating. Yes, and here's why. K specialized in, K specializes, he's still alive, in spectroscopy, which branches into paleontology and astrophysics. He leads, he leads paleontological sites for the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture, as well as being directly involved in the controversy of the detection of blood cells in T-Rex bones, with his work pointing towards a bacterial source. I know. Yeah, so there's that guy. Stone, Alan Stone, is the founder and president of Aston Metallurgical Services. He has degrees in metallurgical engineering, business, and has performed thousands of failure analyses and corrosion investigations So for, for airports. He also specializes in optical microscopy of metals and electron microscopy analysis. So, so they're, they know what they're talking about a little bit. And then Abertrinskis, long name. Kanzutite. She's a, uh, she is a scientific illustrator starting as an artist from the School of Art Institute of Chicago before becoming a professional artist in 1989 at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago documenting Egyptian and Nubian artifacts. Later that same year, she joined the university's Department of Org- Organismal Biology, a lot of weird words in this one, and Anatomy as the principal scientific illustrator. So she's paid to look at things up close and note details. I feel like they're better qualified to do this job than the FBI are. <laughs> <laughs> so, like... the, so these are the citizen sleuths. Yeah, so again, they're not, they're not law enforcement, but they're not average people they're not you and me are you saying we can't solve it yes oh i'm 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 being dead serious on that one <laughs> two rights so this team knew what they were oh, doing doesn't have any confidence in their friends <laughs> they helped in analyzing cooper's tie which showed that it had raw titanium particles as well as a variety of rare earth minerals which suggested he may have been a disgruntled aeronautic engineering worker either from a chemical plant or a metal fabrication factory. Some of the particles included cerium and strontium sulfide, which was used by Boeing's 27-2707 project. This was an attempt at supersonic passenger airliners back then. Funny enough, to, co- to compete with Concorde. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, the project was canceled in 1971 in Seattle, the same year Cooper made his jump. So there's some coincidence here if, you had to, yeah. if I had to add, say anything. I mean, he says that Boeing, you know, it's nothing against the airline, just the fact that the plane was what he needed. So possibly. In fact, as I was researching this topic, another citizen sleuth, independent investigator, also works on this term. He claims that some of the steel titanium particles indicate Cooper may have worked for a metal plant named Remcrew, or Crucible Steel, which was located in Pennsylvania. The name is now... The, the, the plant has, I think, gone under since then. Yeah. But there's also speculation the tie was from a thrift store, as I mentioned briefly. So it should have 
so it could have been from Pennsylvania, but somehow wound up in the Pacific Northwest and on Paratrooper Cooper's shirt collar. I'm not going to not call him that anymore. Anything but. Paratrooper Cooper and hijackings. Yeah. So, and I actually, like, full on, I started researching this, and that was the first thing I see is new evidence in Cooper case. I'm like, that's, what uh, yeah. the hell? That's what I saw, too. It, I'm just like, that's awesome. Now, despite the help of citizen sleuths, the FBI did officially suspend the investigation in 2016, mainly looking to focus their resources and manpower elsewhere. Nearly 50 years of searching and still no one knows or may never know who Dan Cooper really was or what happened to him. We'll never know, I think. Or it could be in... Maybe later on the road we'll finally figure it out. DNA is DNA testing is so impressive nowadays. Yeah. One final little note before I move into the suspects. Uh, there is speculation that the hijacker took the moniker of Dan Cooper from a Belgian comic book about a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot also named Dan Cooper. But these issues weren't in English at the time of the hijacking, so it's assumed the hijacker Cooper may have had a tour of duty in Europe and read the comics there, or he may have even been of French-Belgian origin. Speculation that might not even be real, I mean... Dan Cooper's a pretty common name when you That's, think about it. Like yeah. John Smith. Yeah. Just <clears throat> Like, how many John Smiths do you know? And I actually know a handful. Which is really yeah, insane. Too. Yeah. Now, we're going to look at all 800 suspects, so buckle up, everybody. We're going to be here for the next three hours. All right, I'm going to go home and have fun. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We're going to focus on the primary suspects, most of whom are favorites of investigative authors. And a couple that were FBI... Um, Focus. Kidding. First off, so Kidding. first off, some of the basic details about this is that Cooper knew his stuff. Being a former jumper or paratrooper, paratrooper Cooper, maybe he just did a lot of homework, possibly even being former military, given his particular instructions for the depressurized cabin and setting the wing flaps to 15 degrees. I'm not going to delve into the entire backgrounds and childhoods of these folks because that'll be a long time coming. Yeah. Because that would make this a very long episode. We both have to work in the morning. And we're about, we're a good hour into this, so. We've talked about this almost as long as we talked about Pokemon. Pretty much. (laughs) The first suspect is Richard McCoy Jr., and this guy, everybody likes him. He was born in 1942, he died in 1974. He is an Army veteran with two years in Vietnam as a demolitions expert before working with Green Berets as a helicopter pilot. After time in the Army, he became a warrant officer for the Utah National Guard. He was an avid recreational flyer, I mean, skydiver. Someone's got to have a hobby, so why not that? (laughs) So why not hurl yourself out of of a perfectly good plane? In April 7th, 1972, McCoy did a copycat hijack, brandishing a disguised paperweight as a grenade aboard United Airlines Flight 855, Another Boeing 727 with aft air stairs. He demanded four parachutes and $500,000. Jesus. So people think that he actually did it once and he was going to do it again. And if you look at photos of Richard McCoy, mm, he's kind of goofy looking. I don't think he is the, I don't think he was Dan Cooper. He was arrested two days later with the money in hand. He was tried and found guilty and sentenced to 45 years. This is 1972. 1974, McCoy escapes the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary by driving a garbage truck through the gates. 
He did have help from accomplices. Hold on. Now, he died, and then eventually he died in a police shootout three months later at Virginia Beach. Oh, lovely. Yeah. But why he was not considered a hijacker, why the suspect, why he was not. McCoy was 28 at the time of the paratrooper Cooper hijacking. So the description of him being in his age. 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it was a really hard 28. It had to, I mean, possibly. This was the 70s. Likely that McCoy, while a recreational skydiver, he didn't have an extensive knowledge about skydiving as Cooper did, which I don't know. I mean, I feel like if... Mm, I feel like if, if you could... If you do a few skydives and you actually do your homework, you'd become, become proficient enough to sort of give commands like Cooper did. Absolutely. I'm gonna throw the this is this is this is um what what um Richard McCoy looks like. I sent you a picture. Personally, I don't think it's him because he he looks too goofy looking to me. Yeah, he's not quite compared to the compared to what the image is, and they try to be as accurate as they can be with their with their composite sketches. Yeah. He's too goofy looking to me. Yeah, his I mean he's pretty close. Like if on a scale of one to ten on similarity I'd I'd give him like a six and a half to a seven. Yeah, no, close. I, I, I'm not arguing on that one. He, white guy in the 1970s. He has an alibi that he was in Las Vegas at the time of the hijacking, though. But he is still seen as a person of interest by everybody. They think that he wasn't just a copycat. He was the original Dan Cooper. I should also mention that, yeah, after, after Dan Cooper, after the Cooper uh, thing happened, there were there were people who tried to Oh, I'm Copycat. Sure. There yeah. was no doubts on that one. Well, if he got away, you know, why can't I? Yeah, next one is actually one that a lot of people think, that quite a few people think did. In fact, an investigative author really got into this one. His name was Robert Rackstraw. This is the second person. He was born in 1947. He died in 2019. He's a former Army helicopter pilot during the Vietnam War. He was a halo parachutist. High altitude, Dude, low, low opening. opening. Yep. Received a less than honorable discharge because of conduct unbecoming of an officer, including including he lied about receiving medals, what rank he held, as well as lying about attending two California colleges. All right. It is also said he was extremely angry and disillusioned about being discharged. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He had nine points of... He had nine points of match between Rackstraw and the FBI composites. In fact, I actually have the photo right here, sending it to you right now. Ah, again, possible. If I think it, I think it were a different photo, like not his, not that photo. Like there's a one photo I see where uh... he's in uniform that looks a lot more like what. It looks possibly more like what they were I, looking honestly, for. the first guy looks a little bit closer to him than the Try other. Try that one. This is this is Rackstraw in his uniform. I can now sort of see it. Sort of. Yeah. But it's also like I'm looking for it almost at this point. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not doing that. No. I, I think the other guy is a little bit closer. I, I would like... The one. only... Only issue with um, Rackstraw is he was also 28 at the time of the hijacking, and he was a person of interest in 1978. 
He's an ex-convict as well. Oh, yeah, he murdered his stepfather but was acquitted of the crime in 1978. He tried to fake his own death by stealing a rented plane. The plane was found in a hangar with a new paint job. Nice. He committed check fraud and was in jail for over a year. He was eliminated from being a suspect because there was no direct connection to him being on Flight 305. He then died in 2019 from heart disease. Apparently, between his release from prison and death, Rackstraw apparently was a law instructor at University of California, Riverside, in the 80s and 90s. And then after that, he started a boat repair business, which fell through in 2016 after newfound allegations were made against Rackstraw from another citizen sleuth. Ah. And then, of course... Um, and then, of course, there were others. I'm, I actually have said, just go to the Wikipedia page for these next ones, because there were so many of them. Those were the two yeah. that I could find the most on. Yeah. There's Ted Braden Jr. He was a Special Forces commando during Vietnam. He died, he was born 1928, died 2007, so a little older. So a little older than the guys. But the thing is, he was not well-liked person. He was described by as the perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality, he is listed as 5'8", so, and he was... A little on the shorter end. But he was... But he had a dark complexion, like I said, Cooper had slightly tan like skin, yeah. and was 43 years old of age at the time of the hijacking, which are features all in line with his description. So he's a little shorter, but he definitely at least was a bit better. I mean, he was... He joined the military at age 16 in 1944 with the 101st Airborne. He was a military's one of the military's leading parachutists. A lot of stuff here, so... Possibly. Uh, he was eventually sent to prison, though, for uh, for driving around a stolen vehicle with fake plates. That's well, fun. you know, stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, no. There's a there's a few others here. I mean, there's a, there are so many that people are just like, oh, I think it was my person, because, I mean... I'm you like, want it to be the person you... You want to be the one that found D.B. Cooper. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I remember watching... Like, there's this woman... There's this one guy. Lynn Doyle Cooper. L.D. Cooper. He's a leather worker and a... He was a leather worker and a Korean War veteran. Was proposed as a suspect in July 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. <laughs> he was born in 1931. Died in 1999. At eight years... When Marla was eight years old, she recalled Cooper and another uncle planning something very mischievous involving the use of expensive walkie-talkies. But the th I, I honestly doubt that one because his DNA did not match the partials that had been found on the hijacker's tie. Yeah. There's, uh, there was so many others. There's, uh, there's even a murderer by the name of John List. He had killed his, uh, family, like his wife, mother, and three teenage children, uh, in New Jersey because, um, he full on was in severe debt. And then just vanished. He eventually was caught in 1989, but there was no evidence, no substantial evidence to implicate him in the yeah. crime. There's, there's so many. There's one by Wilbur, by Walter R. There's Walter R. Recca, 1933-2014. This guy was a, apparently a former military paratrooper and intelligence officer. He was proposed as a suspect by his friend Carl Lauren in 2018. So an older guy says, I think it was Walter who was the guy. He was always a little off. He actually wrote a book and everything about his time, like my friend Dan Cooper, something like that. 
and he just goes on about this, but the issue, he goes about how, you know, he fell, and I saw him with a suit, and he had a bloody spot and everything. These claims have been skeptical because allegedly, uh, allegedly, um, Rekka landed near Clay Elum, Clee Elum, Clee Elum, uh, Washington, which is up in central Washington. Uh, Clee Elum is well north and east of Flight 305's known flight path, more than 150 miles north of the drop zone assumed by most analysts, and even further, far from Tinabar, where the money was found. Uh, Rekka was a military paratrooper and private skydiver with hundreds of jumps to his credit, in contradiction to the FBI's publicized profile of an amateur skydiver at best. Rekka also did not resemble the composite portrait, and I don't think I can actually find a photo of him. And I remember the first time I ever actually... And that's just a few of the suspects. There's a Dwayne L. Weber, and this guy actually... This was a death side confession, I remember this one. This guy, uh, he was on his deathbed, died in 1995. And he said that he told his wife, I am Dan Cooper. And then that was it. I remember watching, like, In Search Of, or... I am the wal- walrus, cuckoo too. It's like, a, I, you know, In Search Of, or... Uh, yeah. One of, the, one of the old sci-fi shows back in the day, when they were mm-hmm. talking... Or History Channel back in the day, when they were talking about this. This is how I learned about D.B. Cooper. Yeah. And I remember them talking about it. It's like, I... But we can't composite his story, because he was a... He was a World War II Army veteran, 1927 to 1995 is when he... His life... He was at, he was in six prisons from 1945 to 1968 for burglary and forgery. All right, and Jesus. The only reason he was proposed as a suspect was because of his apparent death side confession, which he said three days before he died. He does fit the physical description, does have a criminal background, but uh, Himmelsbeck, who was one of the investigators, does not think that Cooper that Weber was Cooper. Also, the DNA failed to match samples recovered from Cooper's tie. So, a lot of people, they were thrown out. There's over 800 suspects on this. We may not know. And then, um, the the one independent investigator who just recently was like, oh, it was actually from Pennsylvania. That one, he thinks it's another guy entirely. And some people are calling him out like, eh, I don't think it is, dude. Like, you're, you're wanting it to be. So, we're not... Like, we're... I really do think that... The identity of Dan Cooper is going to remain a mystery for a while. Yeah. Now, there was some aftermath of this, though. I mean, there's aftermath from a lot of things, but this is this, this is actually one of the first real-world mysteries we've covered that had some direct aftermath effect. So, for one, uh, many saw Paratrooper Cooper's hijacking and pir- air piracy as a success, and they tried to copy him. Fifteen different people tried to hijack planes in 1972. Jesus. They all failed, one of those being Richard McCoy Jr., as we covered him earlier. After all the attempted copycat hijackings in 1972, all Boeing 727s were outfitted with a Cooper vane, which is, <laughs> a, which is a specialized automatic lock that keeps the aft stairs up while the plane is in flight. Peepholes were also put into cockpit doors, so pilots didn't have to open the door just to see what was going on. Yeah. And I've seen a Cooper vane. The Cooper vane is set up like this. It's kind of like a weird, it's kind of like a weird um, flat piece of metal and a, and a stem, essentially. Yeah. It, stay, it stays down like this, just, 
stays down normally when the plane's down when the plane starts picking up speed automatically goes up yep which is very which is very nice to have it should also go without saying that db cooper has had quite the impact in pop culture books music television movies the movie without a paddle involves a trio of friends going into the wilderness to find the rest of the money that cooper stole countless documentaries and television as well as episodes of shows dedicated to the mystery of him uh music as well i mean uh freaking kid rock has a song that actually mentions db cooper and the money he took yep. that's in there there's also tom petty with free fallen uh leonard skinnerd free bird and then of course i believe i can fly by oh, okay Kelly. i don't think we can talk we don't about need to that. throw that nope. guy in there <laughs> fuck him jackass nope. <laughs> Ah, uh, those last three. I am kidding. I mean, Leonard, because I'm pretty sure Freebird came out and came out well before. When did Free, When did Freebird come out? How should I know? When's, when's... You're the music guy more than I am. That's fair. That's fair. You're more the music guy than I am. Hey Siri. <laughs> uh, seventy four, seventy five, seventy three. All right, so possibly. I don't think they were talking about DB Cooper. <laughs> I, I don't. But I can just see that now, like the app stairs is going, and it's just I'm free as a bird. Yeah, come on. When the free bird solo kicks in, <laughs> just like just... recently, recently there was the Marvel show Loki, where the title character was DB Cooper. Huh. There's only one crack about this: is that Loki. Huh depicted the incident as being a sunny day with calm weather when it was a cold rainy night and, and you know it's an asgardian god and not... yeah and once he uh and once he jumps and everything he gets picked up by heimdall by the bifrost and all the money and some of the money goes scattering it's like there it is there's a trick <laughs> hey i can't whistle but, i can't either but yeah i know you're talking about the leo dicaprio man yep. hey, hey that's it <laughs> So that is it with that is our story on DB Cooper, Tony. What? Hi, cat. <laughs> my I'm, my cat I'm is up here. If anybody cat. realizes this, he's having fun. Yeah, there. That's Dan Cooper. No, that's your cat. <laughs> Goof. You're you're a damn goofball. What do we have? What's some stuff that you didn't even think on, dude? Like, I mean. So without a paddle, it's the first time I really ever heard about DB Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it was an FBI cover-up in some realms. I it's Somehow aliens got into the phrase on... Yeah, I heard one theory that aliens picked them up, like, mid-jump. It's always aliens. Aliens. God. Hang on. Aliens. What hair? Shut up. <laughs> it's not the point. Nah, you I, do it then. Uh, aliens. Close enough. Oh, both cats are here. Hi, both yes, cats. Yes, they're both up here. Um, yeah, I've heard that he survived and he, you know, had like a getaway car, like on the nearest road. I, yeah, there's all there's, sorts of things. I've heard he died. That I heard, he had an accomplice yeah. to get him out of there. Because, I mean, I've come across another person who was said to have like a bloody shirt yeah. and had injuries or a broken leg. I'm like, yeah, eh. yeah but, I mean, but, I don't think it will ever get figured out. Mm, yeah, because a lot of people, mm. they're still just... 
They're just throwing someone. They're like, oh, I yeah, think it was th- him. They're throwing things at the wall, and the people that are suspects are dying off. I mean, most right. of these guys died in 95, 98, early 2000s. Uh, essentially, just before 2020. Yeah. And so. It, and, I mean, the FBI stopped looking. Yep. They, so they, it's up to civilian sleuths and. And unless we have better access to that sort of stuff, I don't think I don't think that we ever will figure no, it out. No, I think it's going to remain a mystery. Because if if the FBI or the government was involved in some way, shape, or form, we're not going to hear about it for a long while. I don't think. Yeah, I don't and think it's going to. They're going to redact anything that involves them. So it's it's yeah. I, I think DB no Cooper has gone the way of of uh most myths and legends where it's that's what it is now yeah and he'll some people will still view him as very much a robin hood type oh character. yeah he got away with it yeah he, he, is, uh, one, he is one of the few he's i think the only unsolved air hijacking case he got away with it for at least 30 seconds or however long it took for him to fall to the ground oh yeah at least at least that long from 30 seconds to from 30 seconds to 50 years. Yeah. If it was 30 seconds, 30 years, 30 minutes, you know. He may have landed, he may have been fine, and then got attacked by a bear. You know, I a mean. cocaine bear. Uh, <laughs> wrong forested area, but still. I mean, that could happen. <laughs> yeah. So what do we have on the docket for next week's episode, Tony? Well, um, I'm still looking at houses for you. Uh huh. Um, but we're also gonna. I'm also trying to find you a pet doggo. Ooh, you got a doggo, a puppy, pupper. Is it a big pupper? It's uh, a pupper. It's a pupper. I'll put. I'll dog our puppy. It's what? a big puppy. You're gonna what the what? I said I'll dog our puppy. Don't you understand? Don't oh, understand? all dog our puppy. Yes, doesn't matter. Um, Could be old dog, young dog. Middle-aged dog. It's in... in, in. Senior dog is still puppy. (laughs) Cat is not puppy. That's anatomically correct, yes. (laughs) Now we're going to talk about the Beast of Bray Road. Uh Uh-oh. That's definite big doggy, all right. That's anger pupper. That's angry doggy. All right, Unlike you, you are happy fat cat. Eh, the other one's fatter. He's not here for pets. Yeah. So, but yeah, we're going to talk about the beast, beat the brave row, beat the brave row, and uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Oh, it's going to be fun. Once again, everybody, thank you all for listening to Tall and Short with Jim and Tony. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Tall and Short Podcast, where we post photos related to the topic at hand. So there'll be photos of some of the suspects, the DB Cooper composite, a couple other stuff that I found that's like, oh, this is cool. Let's post this. You can also email us at tallandshortpod at gmail.com. Send us comments, questions. Maybe, Your conspiracy theory. Maybe we messed up somewhere along the way and you want, to, and you want us to fix it. More than happy to. We're human. Uh, leave us some rates and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a like and leave a like comment. It would greatly appreciate us. Plus, also, you know, tell your friends, tell your family, coworkers. Tell your fellow hijackers. Your hijackings, yes. Tell them to have, you know... Be sh- and if you tell your co-pilots oh that too have they, them listen while you're flying the plane it'll be fine they'll enjoy this there's yeah. absolutely nothing that'll get them uh you know 
Actually, they wouldn't be able to when you're. Like, this is actually true when you're on when you're actually in a plane. You they have to be so damn focused like they can't just be distracted. Weirdly, then, then how were they having drinks in the sixties and seventies? Not all the time. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's it for this week's episode. So once again, Hi, thank you all for watching. Everybody, have a good Hi, one. Kitty. See you later. Hi, Kitty. <laughs>